Thank you, Mac, for leading us in prayer. Um, Mac is one of our elders elected, uh, one of 12. Also, we have uh, 12 deacons that serve as elected members of leadership in our church and um, six SLT members who also serve. And we're grateful for the vision and the leadership um, and the time and energy and talent that they use to lead our congregation and uh, in so many ways. And I encourage you to keep them in your prayers as well as we continue to um, seek out God's will for who we should be as a congregation and how we can best be who you want us to be. Um, as I mentioned earlier, this summer we've been walking through um, the life of David, uh, a central character in the Old Testament, central also to um, all of Jewish history, the king of kings as a model of kings in the Old Testament and is the foundational person for um, the person of Jesus Christ who, who was the Messiah but came from the line of David. You can trace Jesus' roots back through this line of David. And so David is a very key figure. And what um, should strike us all is that um, David, who lived thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago, isn't that different than you and I. The very things that David faced every day are the very things that you and I face every day. And that's what we're trying to communicate in this um, whole series of sermons and to see how God would have us handle the things that we face on a regular basis. Um, I'm not naive enough as a, a pastor of this church to think that you've all been here every Sunday this summer. In fact, I'd like to point out to some of you, I don't even recognize. But, but just to, to kind of recapture um, a little bit about what we've been talking about. I mean, David um, was chosen as a king uh, by God through um, the prophet Samuel. And Samuel went to um, David's family's home and talked to, talked to his father, Jesse, and said, I, I'm going to have one of your sons. And you know, one of your sons has been chosen as king. I wasn't given a name, but, you know, try your sons out here. We'll have a little show and tell and see which one that, uh, that God has chosen. And so Jesse brought out all of his sons. And uh, what I find interesting about this story is, is that David was an afterthought, not only in the kingdom of Israel. David was an afterthought in his own family. <laughs> because when Samuel said, I'd like to meet all your sons, David wasn't even included. At the end of seven sons, and, and it was clear to Samuel that God hadn't chosen any of them to be the next king of Israel, he says to, to Jesse, do you, do you have any other sons? Is there somebody we're missing here? Oh, yeah, well, you got this young kid that's a son of mine who's out, you know, shepherding the sheep. Maybe we should have him come in. So they had him come in, and sure enough, this was the one, uh, the, the son that, that God had chosen to be the next king of Israel. An unlikely choice. Uh, God uses unlikely choices for people to serve in his kingdom. Um, and then David doesn't automatically go and ascend the throne as king. He goes back out to be a shepherd. He's just been anointed the next king of Israel and goes out to be a shepherd and to sit by himself and write more music and take care of the sheep and make sure that they uh, are okay from all harm and all the predators that are out there until this odd request comes. King Saul suffers from depression in a very serious way. And the only thing that can bring him out of his depression is music. So they're looking for the best musician they can find in the nation of Israel. And somebody in his court knew that the shepherd boy, a son of Jesse, who was out in the field all by himself, was that kind of musician. So he got recommended. That's how he got in the king's court. Only God could organize things that way. No one would plan your career to be uh, the next king by being a shepherd. And hopefully someone would recognize you and choose you to come and soothe the king. And there he learned in Saul's court everything it meant to be a king. And all the ramifications of what it would be to be the leader of the nation of Israel. And he did such a great job that, that uh, Saul also made him one of his key confidants in the kingdom. 
And then we learn that, you know, David, of course, the most famous thing that he did was to go out and kill the giant Goliath who was threatening all of the nation. Behind him last week, Greg um, reminded us that, 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 that David had some very key friendships in his life that encouraged him along the way. They happened to be in the family of Saul himself, Jonathan, the son of Saul, and then later Michael, who became David's wife, who was the daughter of Saul. And these key friendships are the very thing that keep us going in the most difficult times of life. It's important for us to have these key friendships and relationships. Um, this is the way God has even designed the body of Christ, which is why we encourage as, as a church for people to be involved in the life of small groups, because we all need those kinds of relationships. Saul had no idea that God had chosen David as king, and David didn't broadcast it himself. He never really even talked about it with anyone. And God continued to be at work. Now we're going to go back a little bit from the story where Jonathan and Michael are introduced into the life of David to when David comes back to town having slayed Goliath. And that's going to be our scripture lesson today. We're going to put it on the screen and uh, I'm going to encourage you to read the parts that are in yellow. How many of you were in worship last week? Anyone? It's okay. Even if you weren't, just say you were because I won't know. Um, but but you, you will recognize that, that there's a yellow uh, section of scripture here and, and this is... Um, this is what you're going to read. I'll read the white, you read the yellow. And if you were here last week, you remember that, that Pastor Greg sang it. So if you could just sing it like he did, or not, that would be okay. So let's share the scripture reading together. You'll read the yellow parts, I'll read the white. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang... Okay, that wasn't singing, but that also wasn't with any enthusiasm whatsoever for what David had accomplished. I mean, let, let's try it one more time. Okay, all right, we'll just go with that. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David but had departed from Saul. And so he sent David away from him and gave him a command over a thousand men and, and David led the troops in their campaigns. And everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul, when Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. So one of the things that Pastor Greg reminded us of last week is that everybody loves David, right? So everybody loves David. Everybody in Israel loved David. They came out, they celebrated, they sang, they danced. Now I was thinking about the fact that I don't really sing like Greg, but I can dance if you'd like to see that. But Okay, we'll skip it. Um, but everybody loves David. 
Well, almost everybody loved David. <laughs> there was one person who didn't love David, and that person was a key person in all of Israel. It was King Saul. King Saul didn't love David at all. In fact, King Saul re- resented David. David was living in the afterglow of having defeated Goliath. Much to his surprise, I think, when he returned to town, all these people were lining the streets. It was as if the Blackhawks had, had won another Stanley Cup, right? And they had one of these great parades downtown, ticker tape things. We have one every other year here now. Um, we're due for one next year. But David returned, and people were dancing and singing in the streets, and they were, you know, shouting this whole phrase that, that they had put together. Uh, maybe we should do it one more time. Go ahead. Exactly. And while the people celebrated with David and shouted that refrain, Saul had a whole different thought pattern going on in his mind. Saul was very angry. This refrain, those two lines, displeased him greatly. They've credited David with tens of thousands, he thought. But me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. Now I think it's important to note, especially during this Olympic season, that David uh, did not go through the streets pounding on his chest, holding up his finger, I'm number one, I'm number one, I'm the greatest. He didn't do any of that. He just kind of showed up. And the people cheered him for what he had done. He wasn't being offensive to Saul whatsoever. He didn't say anything about what God had done in his life. He wasn't holding it out as he was the greatest person who ever lived. He he simply showed up and people honored him. And it's also, I think, it's important to note that the people didn't say, Saul is done. He didn't do anything because David is so much greater. They said, Saul slain his thousands. That's great. And David is tens of thousands. And we know it's a metaphor, right? He hadn't really slain tens of thousands, yet he had only slain Goliath. But Goliath loomed large as an enemy. And so, hey, look, he took down our biggest enemy, but Saul's done a lot of great things for us. We want to acknowledge both of them. But Saul heard this very differently than anyone else. Saul had a hearing problem. He was jealous of David, and it colored everything that he heard and saw. Jealousy is a poison and we are all prone to jealousy in fact probably one of the most dangerous things we can say is well I'm not a jealous person I don't have a jealous bone in my body oh we all are a little bit jealous I mean it would help us to understand what we are dealing with if we if we have a working definition of jealousy and so psychologists define jealousy as an emotion which typically refers to the thoughts and feelings of insecurity fear Concern and anxiety over an anticipated loss of status or something of great personal value. An anticipated loss. Not a, not a literal loss. An anti- I think this might be happening. That's exactly what's going on in Saul's mind, right? I think this is what's happening. It's oftentimes a reference to human connection, romance. Jealousy often consists of a combination of emotion such as anger and resentment and inadequacy and helplessness and disgust. The Bible's definition of, uh, of jealousy is actually quite interesting. It, it, the word means to become red in the face, literally to become red in the face. 
or to become hot with anger because of your jealousy or, or to infuriate, which is exactly what it says about what happened to Saul. Saul was infuriated by what the people said about David. Listen to what it says in the book of Proverbs about jealousy. Jealousy makes a man furious and he will not spare anyone when he takes his revenge. It burns hot within us. Saul is a textbook case of jealousy. Saul is angry at David because he sees David as a threat. A threat to his power and his prestige and his status in all of Israel. And this particular incident that we read about a few minutes ago where where, um, Saul is having one of his bouts of depression and David is in playing the lyre and and all of a sudden Saul tries to pin him to the wall with a spear... And David dodged it twice, so it wasn't like a one-time thing. It happened a couple of different times it was there. Sets off a whole series of events that you can read through the rest of the chapters of 1 Samuel about Saul hunting down David and trying to eliminate him from the face of the earth because he saw him as a threat. He tried to kill him on numerous occasions. He chased him from town to town. David hid out in some unlikely places, and Saul always was managed to somehow figure out where he was. Saul was angry with David. Jealousy can really lead to some crazy behavior. I mean, Saul is evidence of that, right? When we think of jealousy, it's often associated with romance and relationships. More often than not, feelings of jealousy flare with such intensity, psychologists say, that they burn a hole in our brain, obliterating rational thought, setting off behaviors that create a self-fulfilling prophecy by pushing away the very person that one desires or, 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 or needs the most. You know, you get jealous with somebody, you do some crazy stuff, does that make them like you anymore? No, it usually makes you, it makes you like, this guy's nuts, I'm out of here. I could tell you stories about that. Does anybody remember, um, remember the name Lisa Nowak? Oh, you'll remember the story of Lisa Nowak, right? 2007? A 44-year-old woman in the astronaut program drove from Houston to Orlando in Depends, so she wouldn't have to stop, because she was going to kidnap the new girlfriend of a man with whom she was having an affair. I don't know about you, that sounds like crazy behavior to me. It's a 44-year-old woman who is mature enough to know better, right? You can't be an idiot and be in the astronaut program. She had to be very bright, intelligent, score off the charts, get accepted. She was in the astronaut program. But jealousy can burn a hole in your brain and make you do crazy things. How about Wanda Holloway? Some of you aren't even old enough to remember Wanda Holloway. Wanda Holloway hired a hitman to kill the mother of one of her daughter's rivals who was trying out for cheerleading in junior high. Her daughter didn't make it. She was angry, so she thought the way to get back at the girl who made it was to kill her mother. It burns a hot hole in your brain, this whole jealousy thing. It it leads to some really crazy behavior by people. How about uh, Tanya Harding? It's Olympic season, right? Remember Tanya Harding and her little incident with Nancy Kerrigan, right? She was jealous of Nancy's success, so she got one of her friends to take a lead pipe and to meet Nancy as she came off the ice and to swat her in the knee to injure her because she was jealous of Nancy's success. Jealousy leads to crazy behavior. Every successful rock group that has ever existed that disintegrates, disintegrates because of jealousy in the band. Somebody's getting too much attention. Somebody's getting too much credit. 
It just doesn't happen in the broken halos, okay? It happens in the workplace. Colleagues will undermine the work of others who they see as being more successful and a threat to their position in the company. It's little things, too. I mean, they're not throwing spears or beating people up with lead pipes. They're just forgetting to give you the information that might be helpful to you in your success. Or they might forget to deliver a message that one of your customers called to you. Or they might forget one thing or another. It isn't as overt as what some people do when they're jealous. Sports teams at every level fracture because of the poison of jealousy, especially if it's allowed to grow. I mean, I coached high school boys basketball and high school girls basketball, and every year, every year, you deal with something that has to do with jealousy, both with the girls or the boys. It didn't make any difference. It's not gender-specific. It happens on lots of teams. And one of the things they don't tell you as a coach is that if all you had to do was teach the kids how to play the sport and coach the games, life would be easy, but you've got to manage all these relationships. And managing jealousy is a horrible, difficult thing to do. In men. And it wasn't just a jealousy amongst the players. The worst jealousy was a jealousy amongst the parents about the players. The church isn't immune to jealousy. If you read the book of Galatians and Paul starts to contrast how you should live versus how people do live. And he lists this whole um, row of sins that people engage in. Adultery, sexual immorality, uncleanness, lustfulness, idolatry, sorcery. This whole long list. Hatred. All these things that we would list as sins. You know what else is listed in that list? Jealousy. Divisions. Envy. They're all in there. Because the church is not immune to jealousies. Some are jealous of the positions or popularity of others within the life of the church. Some church employees can be jealous of the success of their colleagues. Some churches are jealous of the success or perceived success of other churches and try to undermine their success with rumor or innuendo or criticism. Jealousy is everywhere. Jesus himself was a victim of jealousy, was he not? The religious and the civil authorities saw Jesus as a threat The son of David, like David himself, was gaining way too much popularity for the religious authorities. And they were worried because they felt threatened. And the Romans felt as threatened because people were talking about a new king. And this was political in their mind. And Jesus was becoming way too popular with too many people. And they felt threatened. So when you feel threatened and you move toward jealousy, you get rid of the threat. And so they put Jesus on a cross, hoping to eliminate his influence. I mean, jealousy is something that we all engage in at one level or another, and I think that social media has accelerated the proliferation of jealousy in our society today. I mean, we we can read every day about the fabulous lives that other people are leading. We see their postings on their vacations, of their homes, of their wardrobes, of their business success, of their children's achievements, the work of their churches... And we have a sense of jealousy. There's little pangs of jealousy that exist within us. And jealousy is a problem for all of us, but jealousy is a symptom and not a cause. Jealousy is not a cause of a problem. It's a symptom of another problem. Jealousy is a symptom of our own insecurities. Let me remind you again about Saul's perspective of David. Saul was very angry. 
I mean, this refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. I mean, think about Saul for a minute, right? If you go back and read about Saul being chosen as king, he had a pretty impressive resume. Smart, a charismatic leader, a military mind, lots of followers and support, charismatic, tall, dark, and handsome, we are told. I mean, on the outside, if you looked at Saul, you'd say, man, this guy's got everything you need to be a great king of Israel. He should be proud of what he's doing. He is going to take the world by storm. This is amazing. And David didn't set out to take something away from Saul. David didn't do things intentionally to make Saul jealous. David simply did what he was asked to do to the best of his ability. And oftentimes, even in spite of himself, he was wildly successful. And do you see how this plays out for Saul, these assignments that David is given? You know, first it's the throwing of the spears. Well, he he can't kill him that way, so he says, hmm, how else can I get rid of um, David? Oh, I know. I'm going to send him to a place against an enemy that we can never defeat, and he'll die in that battle. Poof, problem solved. So he sends David out on these assignments, and David keeps coming back as a victor every time, even when the odds are set against him. And it wasn't like David said, you know what, if I really win this one, Saul is going to be extremely jealous, and that'll be so much fun. It was about Saul's insecurity. You see, on the inside, Saul struggled with things. He, He saw David as a threat to all that he'd worked for in life. And the slightest affirmation of David became a major affront to Saul, and Saul didn't know that his time as king was limited. No one had bothered to tell him and that God had a different plan in place. However, Saul's sense of meaning and purpose were founded on power and prestige and status. And when that was threatened, he reacted with jealousy. Jealousy becomes an issue when we stake our identity on things or people. Status and prestige and power and stuff are only temporarily things that satisfy us. Saul liked the prestige and the power and the status of being king. He was in love with the throne. The memory of God choosing him as king, of God building a pathway for him, of God giving him the opportunities and blessing him with success had faded. And insecurity overwhelmed him, and any perceived threat had to be eliminated. This is the way Saul's mindset was working. Positions, Titles, programs, the size of our business, the achievements of our children or ourselves, awards that are won, titles that are embraced, do not provide security for us in life in spite of the way we behave and what we think. In fact, they're often those things that drive us toward insecurity because they come and go so quickly. And a lot of times our success is driven by our own sense of insecurity. Security is found in one place only. And that's in our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Could we ask for anything more 
than to know what God thinks about us. I mean, I might like you, I might affirm you, I might think you're a really talented person, and you kind of go, yeah, but to know what God thinks about you? David wrote about this, you know. Are you familiar with Psalm 8? So, so imagine, I'm thinking that David wrote this psalm when he was a shepherd. And he's out in the field all by himself. Looking up at the heavens and the stars and everything that's up there. And this is what David is thinking. You know, when I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers and the moon and the stars, which you've set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them and human beings that you care for them? I mean, these are the questions of insecurity, are they not? You know, when we look, look around the room. When I look around the room, all these great people are in this room, these highly spiritual people, these people who say, God, you're such great. When I look around the room, what does God care about me? Let alone when I think about the world or the universe. or anything. What a, Me? God, God thinks about me? These are the questions of insecurity. Now I'm going to have you read the second part of Psalm 8. And I've taken the liberty of changing the pronouns just a little, but I think it's in keeping with what the psalm means. And I want you to understand how God thinks about us. Let's read this together out loud. You have made us little lower than the angels and crowned us with glory and honor. You made us rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under our feet. This is the way God thinks about us. This is what God has given to us. We are known as the crown of his creation. That's a pretty good deal, don't you think? If God thinks this way about us, or, or, listen, or listen to the way Peter writes about who we are as people. We are, let's read this together, we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that we may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. We're a chosen people. We're a royal priesthood. We're a holy nation. We're God's special possession. That's who we are. That's our identity. That's where security comes from. Not from what I own, not from what I accomplish, not from what I do, and certainly not from what I wear. My security comes from the fact that this is the way God thinks about me and loves me and owns me and what God wants to give me. And... Saul had kind of lost that idea. In Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul addresses this very issue of security when he wrote to the church at Philippi. If someone else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I've got more. What Paul is saying here, you know, if anybody else thinks they're hot stuff or have done everything great or are the, are the greatest among all people because of all you've accomplished and all the awards you've gotten and all the accolades. If anybody else thinks that about themselves, I've got you beat. And then he starts to give his resume. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin. I was born into the right family and I was given the right opportunities. I've got pedigree, the Apostle Paul is saying. A Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, I was a Pharisee. I knew the law. I got a PhD in Jewish law. I I was a leader amongst the Pharisees. They looked to me for their leadership. I've got everybody beat. And that's exactly the way people looked at Paul when he was called Saul. 
As for zeal, I persecuted the church. I killed more Christians than anybody else. I was out there trying to lead the Jewish nation to eliminate Christianity. No one could top me with all that. And as for righteousness, as for being one with God because I obeyed all the laws, I was faultless. And that you could measure. I was faultless, Paul says. If that's where you place your security and what we accomplish and how we're born and the status that we have and doing everything right, then no one could top Paul. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider for loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. All that stuff that Paul listed before that he thought was so important, I, I consider all that garbage now. That I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul realizes that everything he used to put all of his hope and security in is really nothing more than garbage. And the most important thing for all of us in terms of security is to know Christ and to know the power of his resurrection, to participate in his sufferings, become like him in death, and so somehow attain to the resurrection of the dead. Real security in life comes from knowing Jesus, from this intimate relationship that we have with him. And we all kind of lean toward measures of success and security, right? I keep looking at my watch because I'm wondering if I'm running out of time. I, okay, I'll tell one more story. It's a little more personal. So, you know, when I was younger, um, I didn't know any better. I, you know, I was a lot like... Paul when he was growing up or Saul when he was being king and I thought that you know having a list of accomplishments building your resume that's what gave you security in life <laughs> and my mom God bless her really helped me by that by collecting every article that was ever written about me every award I ever won both of them um, <laughs> she made scrapbooks of all my high school accomplishments mostly of games I played there were a couple of academic accomplishments but mostly it was games I played and she put all this stuff in scrapbooks and we, you know kept it all and gave it to me I think it was a matter of I'm clearing out my house take this out of here will you please and so we had all of this stuff and all the way through college she had all this stuff I forgot about a lot of stuff we had all, we had all this stuff we had all this stuff around the house it was always there and one time uh, we were about ready to move and so Becky was packing up all this stuff all these important accomplishments that I had had, I mean, you know, degrees from seminary, you know, other things that I had, you know, receiving calls to churches, all this other stuff that we had. She put it all in a box. And she wrote on the side of it, Peter's ego box. <laughs> One more affirmation that God gives you to spouse to keep you humble. Are you familiar with John Ortberg's book, When It's All Over, It All Goes Back in the Box? When you finish the Monopoly game, no matter how many houses you have and how much stack of money you got, it all goes back in the box. Every game you play, it all goes back in the box. 
And for a long time, I, I bought into that ego box. But there is nothing more important in life because everything can be taken away, but no one can take away knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for stories of people who are like us, like David and like Saul. Their problems are our problems. Their flaws are our flaws. Their mistakes are our mistakes. Thank you for opportunities to learn from other people, to see how you worked in their lives, to lift up the values and the priorities that you have for us that you think are so important and that we sometimes you know, have brain cramps about. Teach us, O oh Lord, the most important lessons of life. Not only through our relationship with you, but through our relationships with one another. Help us to know you and the power of your resurrection in our lives. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God gives us many gifts. Obviously, the gift of the friendship of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, Every Sunday, um, at this point in our service, we say thank you for all your gifts to us through our tithes and offerings. I encourage you to be generous in your giving as God has been generous to us. And we're going to continue to worship as the band leads us.